Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, this fall, we have been looking at the essentials of the Christian faith using the Apostles' Creed as our guide. And this morning, uh, before we take a break starting next week for Advent and Christmas and Christmas Tide, we're going to talk about the part of the Creed that affirms that on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, we heard about the fact of Jesus' resurrection in the gospel lesson that Brian read for us this morning. I love the way that Luke tells that story. He says those beautiful women showed up. They were perplexed. They fell down on their faces, and who really could blame them? They uh, have to hear the question and probably feel the question that was asked to them before the pieces start to fall into place. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It slowly dawns on them that everything has changed. Everything has changed. And that's what I want us to think about together this morning, if we can. Not just about the fact of Jesus' resurrection, uh, but about the meaning of Jesus' resurrection and what it changes for people like me and you. So I'm going to read from Philippians 3 for us. I'll read Philippians uh, 3 the second half of verse 4 through 11, you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Philippians 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now, uh, as we always do, that you'd be happy to use this word that we have just read and heard together to show us the word that bears our flesh, our elder brother Jesus, who's seated with you right now, who's praying for people like us. Father, we just sang that you would give our jaded senses light, and we ask that that would be true. Meet those of us here this morning. Uh, who have faith and who are ready to hear from you, those of us here this morning who feel far from you, who don't have faith, who were reluctant to come even this morning. Father, meet us in the places where we are. Convince us, like we heard in the Old Testament lesson, that you are doing new things and you can do new things even with us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, about uh, just a little over 18 years ago, after our first daughter, Ellie, was born, um, shortly after she was born, like days after she was born, 
we had one of those rough nights that uh, new parents and kids uh, have from time to time. Ellie was crying. It was the early hours of the morning, and it seemed to us that she was inconsolable. We, we had tried uh, pretty much anything to get her to stop crying, and nothing was working. <clears throat> so we got to that point uh, that new parents and kids sometimes get to uh, where Ellie was not the only one crying, if you know what I mean. And I, in that moment, remembered uh, reading or hearing that sometimes you could put a baby in a car seat and take them on a drive, and maybe that would work. Something about the motion would make them uh, calm down and stop crying. So it was like 3 or 4 in the morning, but I didn't care. I would have done almost anything in that moment. So I got dressed. I took Ellie. I put her in the car seat. And as I was heading towards the back door, um, I, I picked up the car seat, and I just swung it a little bit. And she went completely silent in that instant, completely silent. It was amazing. So uh, instead of heading out the door, I stood in the middle of our dark living room, all the lights off, everyone else asleep, and I swung her in that car seat for the next two hours. Just stood there in the middle of that living room, switching arms every once in a while, swinging and swinging, afraid to stop because I thought it might break the spell. And I, I got to tell you, I think uh, part of it was being a new dad, and part of it was the delirium of having not slept. But as I stood there swinging her, I felt like a hero. <laughs> I felt so, so powerful. I, I felt like I am the provider of sleep. And in that delirium, I started to imagine, hey, this is what it's going to be like for me night after night in the upcoming weeks. I'm just going to stand here alone doing what I need to do in the dark, swinging my baby to sleep. Well, <clears throat> that next morning, we had some friends come over. They wanted to meet Ellie. They brought brunch to the house. And, of course, I told them the story. And I paused at all, all the right parts so that they could tell me how awesome I was which they did not do. <laughs> and when I finished the story, this is what my buddy said to me. He said, Aaron, you know that they sell swings at the Kids R Us, right? <laughs> it's pretty much the perfect response for that moment. And in one instance, all of my heroism, all of my nobility drained away. I realized I'm not a hero. I'm the same knucklehead as the night before. And that same kind of reverse credentialing runs right through the heart of the part of Paul's letter to the Philippian church that we just read and heard together. Paul tells his friends in that little church that he has come face to face with a reality that has made him realize in one instance that all of his credentials, all of that stuff that he had worked so hard to accumulate around himself, that he had spent his whole life trying to garner, things his peers would have regarded as wildly important and impressive and weighty, he had seen a reality that made him realize they were pretty much nothing at all. In fact, he does this thrilling piece of destructive accounting, and he says that now he counts all of those credentials, all of that stuff that he had worked so hard for, he counts it as loss, worse than loss, really. He says, I count it as rubbish, garbage, compared to the great centering reality of my life. And church, 
that great reality is the risen Jesus. The great centering, reordering, narrative-breaking reality of the Christian life is, as Paul puts it, the power of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus has rewritten the story of the world for Paul, and it's rewritten his own story, and it has given him a new way to live. And what he wants for his friends in that little church and for us is to see that same reality, to walk into that new story, and to walk in into that new way to live. So Paul is writing this letter to his friends from a Roman prison. And I think it's important to mention that Roman prisons don't uh, exist. They did not exist to rehabilitate, rehabilitate anyone. They were more like holding pens to keep people out of the way until the Roman power could decide whether they wanted to execute you or let you go. And in order to survive in a Roman prison, you were dependent on friends from outside to support you. So that's what had happened. His friends in this little church in Philippi had heard of what's going on with Paul. They heard he was in prison, so they sent him a gift. Probably money, maybe some food, maybe something to read, maybe something to write with. And they had sent that gift with a guy named Epaphroditus. And so Paul gets the gift, and he writes the letter to the Philippian church. It's essentially a thank you note that he sends back to the church with Epaphroditus. But of course, Paul uh, uses this occasion to say a lot more than thanks. And in the part of the letter that we just read, he is animated about a potential threat to the life of this little church. There were teachers running around to the churches that Paul founded. And these churches were mostly made up of pagan converts. These are super baby Christians, very brand new to the Christian faith. And these teachers are running around to these churches, coming in behind Paul and telling these Christians, look, it's okay that you're Christians. It's okay that you follow Jesus. But if you want to be the best Christian that you can possibly be, you will also submit to certain rules, certain rituals and food and purity laws. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Paul, you should probably know this, this makes him really, really upset. Over and over again in his letters, he says that faith in Jesus is enough and that faith in Jesus plus anything else is false and it will wreck your faith. So he comes in pretty hot here. He wants his friends to look out for anyone who tells them that they should be putting, as, as Paul puts it, confidence in the flesh, that they should watch out for anybody, anybody, who tells them that they should put their confidence in credentials or in doing a bunch of stuff, no matter how good those things might appear to be. And this is where Paul begins to do that destructive accounting. He says, look, if if anyone wants to put confidence in stuff like that, there is nobody who could ever ever match me. From the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee for goodness sakes, a persecutor of the church, and when it came to following the law, I was completely blameless. Paul's saying, listen, none of these jokers who are coming around trying to mess up your faith, trying to wreck your faith, none of these jokers can come anywhere close to me. 
Now, I know that none of the stuff that Paul just listed there as his credentials means much of anything to us as 21st century Christians living in the culture that we live in. Maybe it's historically interesting to us. But we certainly have our own equivalents. And by that, I mean we have things that we tend to put our confidence in, that we tend to rest in. You know, being born in the right family and having stellar test scores and going to a really good college and getting great grades, being distinguished in our field, making partner or or looking like we're definitely going to make partner one day, having the correct politics, whatever those might be, having charming, well-adjusted kids or kids that look like they could be charming and well-adjusted, sitting on the right boards, traveling to all the right places and posting really good pictures of all of those right places, being liked by the right people, having really good theology, volunteering a lot, being good-looking, being smart, dating the right person, being married, being sought out for our opinions and our thoughts on things. You know this list could go on and on. (laughs) And maybe I didn't mention your personal thing or group of things, but if you're anything at all like me, you know that it is not hard to come up with a personal list of that stuff really quickly. Church, this is the stuff that we rest in. This is the stuff that we have confidence in. This is the stuff that makes us feel pretty good. The stuff that we work really hard to make sure that other people notice. And please hear me, I'm not saying that these things are bad. Some of these things are really good, or they could be really good. But they are all wildly, wildly transient. They could all go away at any second. And they mean different things to different people. You have to work really, really, really hard to maintain them and to keep them up. But here's the kicker. Even if none of those other things were true, and they are true, even if none of those other things were true, here's the kicker. These things do not really have any ultimate significance in the true story of the world. Their pleasures are fleeting, and the rest that they offer is thin, and it it is always, always slipping away. And part of growing up, and I just mean growing up, is coming to terms with that truth about life. And if we want to grow up as Christians, if we want to mature in our faith, then we absolutely have to figure that out and come to terms with it sooner rather than later. Because in this new world that began at the resurrection of Jesus, the accounting method has completely, completely changed 
As Paul says it in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In one stroke, with one mouse click, those debits, credits all moved to the debit column. And you know, in Paul's life, there is absolutely no one who would dispute this narrative. <laughs> no one would dispute this. I mean, by one way of accounting, Paul used to be somebody. Paul used to be an up-and-comer. Paul was a kid with promise. <laughs> but now he is chained up in a prison cell. He is dependent on outsiders for his next bite of, I hope it's not moldy food. But listen, he has never been more content in his life. <laughs> he has never been filled with more joy in his life. He has never been more sure of who he is and what he is on this earth to do than he is in that moment. And church, that comes from a whole different way of accounting. And it is a way of accounting that is only possible if on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. Because the other way to put it, which is how Paul puts it in his letter to the Corinthian church in the passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago, the other way to put it is this way. If the dead are not raised, if Jesus is not raised, then let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Which is another way of saying, go after it. Go after all of the effervescent, transient, here today, gone tomorrow, cotton candy kind of stuff that you can get. Go after all of it early and often. Get as much of it as you can. Get all of it because that's all we ever get. And that's the best that any of us here could ever hope for. And it's the only way of living that makes any sense at all if you and I do our accounting in a closed world where what we see is what we get and that's all that there is. But what we need to contend with, church, what I want us to think about and celebrate is what if we don't live in a closed world? What if that is not the world we live in? What if the world that we live in is the world those beautiful women woke up in on that first Easter Sunday, a wonderfully open world? Because on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. What if, if you and I can actually feel contentment? Not the unsettled twitchiness we often feel. What if we could really feel content? What if you and I could really know joy? Not the fake stuff that comes from consuming and using, but the real thing, real contentment. What if we could know why we're here and what we're supposed to do with our lives. Well, we can get at the answers to those questions if we start asking the ultimate questions that lie behind them. What am I looking to for meaning and identity? What do I rest in for life and for peace? What do I put my confidence in? Is it in a million lesser things that have never and will never deliver? Or is it in the only thing that ever has and ever will? And that's the thing that Paul moves to next. On a dusty road outside of Damascus, he had come face to face with the reality that re-narrated the story of the world to him. 
and that invited him to find his own place in that story. As he says it in verse 8, once he had seen the risen Jesus, he counted everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing him. And that is intimate language. That is very intimate language, and we can't escape it. I love the intimacy that Paul uses. He's not talking about knowing a bunch of stuff about Jesus. He's talking about actually knowing Jesus. And I know that not all of us in here are inclined this way, but some of us are. So let me say this, starting with the, for the preacher, we should never confuse assuming, amassing a bunch of facts about something. We, we should never confuse knowing a bunch of stuff about something with actually knowing that thing. We may be able to spout a lot of orthodoxies about the person of Jesus. We may know the gospel stories like the back of our hand. That is no guarantee that we know him. And we need to hear this, all of us, because over and over again in Paul's letters, we see that he talks about faith in Jesus, not in abstract terms, but in relentlessly personal terms. Church, this is at the heart of our faith. There is no escaping it. There is no substitute for it. We come to believe and we come to live out of the truth that Jesus loved me. And he died and was raised and was ascended for me. And that he did all of this not just for the good of the world, but for my good. Do we believe this? Paul can never get over it. He doesn't want anyone else to get over it. He repeats himself in verse 8, as he is often wont to do. He repeats it again, and he expands it. He says, For Jesus' sake I've suffered the loss of all things, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's an incredible image. When Paul talks about gaining Christ, he's not talking about adding Jesus to his portfolio or something like that. If he did that, it would just be the same old accounting along with all of his other credentials. Oh yeah, he's a Christian too. No. Paul talks about gaining Jesus in a very different way. He says, to be found in him. Paul isn't the one doing the finding. Paul is the lost one who is found. And Jesus becomes a place for him. A home where the formerly lost Paul can finally find the peace and the rest and the identity and the joy that he had been created for in the first place. And that's the home that Paul wants people like us to find ourselves living in so that we can find the same thing. The peace and the rest and the identity and the joy and the meaning that you and I were actually created for. And so that's why our accounting has got to change, because as long as we run by that old system of accounting, and we've got a death grip on all of that stuff that keeps slipping away from us, here's what happens. We're going to be tempted to this never-ending battle, this never-ending temptation to grab more and more of that stuff as it steadily slips away. And we can grab as much of it as we want, church. We can hold on to all that stuff as hard as we want to hold on to it. And the result will always be the same. It will never deliver. Because that stuff wasn't meant to deliver. (laughs) 
you know what I did uh, when my friend told me that uh, Kids R Us sold swings? I mean, I got in the car and I drove out to the suburbs to Kids R Us and I bought a swing because <laughs> I thought this could change everything. <laughs> and this is the change. This is the change that the apostle is inviting his friends and us to. This accounting change where we drop all of this stuff that we've been clinging to and we find ourselves home. Home. And in that home, all of the other things that we have been clinging to finally fall into place. They finally make sense and we become free. Free to live the life that we were made to live. And one of the first things that's true about that life for Paul and for me and you too is that we get a righteousness, a rightness that comes from God. Not a rightness and a righteousness that we somehow have to frantically or desperately build up in ourselves or prove to other people as if we could ever do that. To be found in Jesus is to be having his righteousness, which is all anyone like us ever needs. And to know that that is true, to believe that that is true, it is to be set free. (laughs) Because when we're free, we don't do good stuff in order to earn favor. We do good stuff because we have been given a home and we are grateful. And we don't need to manipulate people into liking us so that we can feel this alien rightness. We're actually free to love people, to seek their good, even when it costs us. And when we're free, we don't do our jobs, we don't create things, we don't follow our vocations in order to build up our own status and power. We do those things for the good of our neighbors and for the good of the world, because we know we are home walking alongside our elder brother, who is making his kingdom more and more present in this world. And that is at least part of what I think Paul means when he talks about life that knows the power of Jesus' resurrection. (laughs) To be found in Jesus is to be found in his resurrected life. It means being new creations ourselves. It means that we have the power to put away old motivations and old habits that were harmful to us and harmful to the people around us and take on new motivations and build in new habits that lead to life and healing and restoration. I think he's talking about the freedom and the peace and the deep joy of actually living as a new creation like we were made to live, walking, as he puts it in another letter, in newness of life. That's the power of Jesus' resurrection for people like me and you. And it is offered to us by grace because on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us, as always, to be a people who see and hear and believe, who will not be content, who cannot be content with just knowing that these things are true, but that we are people who are believing them deep inside of the core of who we are. These things are transforming us and changing us so that all of that stuff that we rest in, all of that stuff we want to have so much confidence in, can finally 
find its proper place and we can be free to love. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.